This interview with Dr. Nancy Grace Roman was recorded on August the 4th, 2018. The full interview lasted for two hours and 20 minutes. A shortened version is presented here. I travelled from Sydney, Australia to Washington, D.C. on behalf of the Annual Reviews of Astronomy and Astrophysics so that this interview could accompany her 2019 prefatory article. Nancy Grace was very happy to conduct the interview and invited me for lunch at her Chevy Chase apartment in Washington, D.C. so that I could see some of her memorabilia collected over the years. On arrival in Washington, D.C., I received a text message from a colleague, Dr. John Mather, that Nancy Grace had taken a fall and was now in hospital. I went in search of her and eventually found the hospital on the outskirts of the city an hour away. I found Nancy Grace already sitting in a chair and anticipating the arrival of a guest. She was restless and looking forward to returning to her apartment. I was not to know that this was one of the last interviews Nancy Grace would ever give. She died on Christmas Day in 2018 at the age of 93. We spoke of a follow-up interview back at her apartment in 2019, but sadly this was not to be. My lasting impression of Nancy Grace, never Nancy, always Nancy Grace, was a warm, amusing and engaging person with a sharp and inquiring mind, whose gaze never left yours. The interview was conducted under the duress of circling hospital staff, but Nancy Grace commanded attention and soon we were able to settle into a relaxed format for the interview. So, how did you become a scientist? I have no idea. I say that most children become interested in astronomy between the ages of 10 and 12, mm. and I never outgrew it. However, there is some indication that I uh, was interested in the sky even earlier. So what were your parents like? Well, my mother was a, a teacher with a specialty in music. My father was a geophysicist. Ah. So I got the science from him. Wow. So where were you brought up? Presumably in the, in the East Coast? No, all over the country. Everywhere but New England. Well, I was born in Nashville in Tennessee. And, uh, a southern belle. Southern belle. <laughs> I lived there a whole three months. And my father was at Vanderbilt University. And an oil company came along and said, we have a new field that we think is worth looking into, mm. and you have the background that would be appropriate. Would you like to try it? And so he took a year's leave of absence and joined the oil company. Well, they sent him all over the Southwest, Texas, Oklahoma. And they were prospecting for oil yes. drills. Oh. And uh, then they sent him up to New York, but we actually were living in New Jersey. And uh, that was fine until the Depression. And then he lost his job. He was in research, and research was not high priority during the Depression. Do you remember the Depression? Because you would have been very young. I remember bits and pieces of it. I don't remember it as a major event, except that it clearly affected lifestyle. Mm. And so he got a job at Michigan College of Mining and Technology. So we went up to the farthest north of, in Michigan, the northern peninsula of Michigan. Oh, right. There's a little finger that sticks up sticks into up. Lake yeah. Superior. And we were halfway up that finger. Gosh, so we had long winters then. Yes, and, cold, and lots of snow. And uh, then he got the job in the government. In the geological survey, I think it was. The organization he was in kept getting 
transferred between the Geological Survey and the Bureau of Mines. Yeah. And I never kept track of which was which. So anyway, we went out to Reno, Nevada for two years. And I suspect, I don't have any evidence, and he never talked about it, but the way things developed, I suspect he was prospecting for water for the, oh. uh, for the military. Oh, yes, of course. He wouldn't be able to talk about that. And I don't know that, that I'm just guessing, because it was during World War II that the military made a good use of Nevada as training areas. Yeah. So anyway, we were in Reno for two years. And then we moved to Baltimore, and I went to high school, junior high there. What was your mother like? In what way? I mean, she was obviously traveling around the country. It was very tolerant. <laughs> yes, and she didn't like it. She definitely did not like moving. Once they settled down in Baltimore, they bought a house. And uh, they were there then for about 40 years. So it right. made up for the moving around earlier. Did you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Gosh. Do you remember your father or mother talking to you about science or technology or any of those things? Do you have any memory of getting a bit of... Because you became very tech-savvy later in life. Well, I don't know. I guess my father did to some extent, but I don't really... The thing I remember about his teaching is mental arithmetic. He was quite, quite strong on that. Hmm. And it's been very useful. What he did was to play a game with me, which was basically algebra, I recognize now, yeah. in which you pick a number and then do all kinds of things with it. Oh, and then see. he ends up telling you the result. And did that start really young? So you were getting mathematically thinking yes. from a young age? Yes. And a few other things. For example, he, instead of the complicated formula for doing square roots, he thought, that the best way is just multiple division. Hmm. You divide, take the average of the quotient and the, and the divisor, and divide with that, and it goes very quickly. Hmm. Gosh, you would have had an advantage at your school by the time yes. you went to school. Yes. Do you remember your school years, your junior school years? Happy times? Some of them, yeah, some parts of them. I remember having a feud with a geometry teacher. <laughs> She was an old-fashioned teacher who believed in memory. And I have a good overall memory in the sense of what things are like, mm. but I don't have a memory for detail. And she was one of these people who, I could prove the theorem, but that didn't satisfy her. She had to know the number of the theorem, the number of, oh. of each step that you use, and no. it had to be quoted exactly. So yeah. she and I did not get along. Yeah, analytic brains are different. You know, yeah. if you're going to be good at memorizing, become a lawyer or right. an accountant or something. At one point, she threatened to fail me on the test. Seriously? And she did. God. I remember that. I remember the Latin teachers, one I liked very well. Didn't particularly like Latin until <laughs> I got to Virgil, but I did like the teacher. What was the name of your school? I went to two different ones. I went to Roland Park junior high, and uh, I moved between, moved from one part of Baltimore to another, yeah. which is why I changed schools. And the second school was a school that didn't believe in treating 
children according to their ability. Oh. And the net result was I spent my time in class writing for the school newspaper, making crossword puzzles, <laughs> doing all my homework. <laughs> and some of the children just couldn't keep up at all and were completely mm. lost. No. So it was a not a very satisfying. So streaming existed at that time. There yes. were schools with streaming. Oh, yes. Oh, right. But that one didn't. One problem I remember from high school, again, it was the war period, and uh, it was a girls' school. It was a public school, but in Baltimore, the best uh, public schools, high schools, were and still are segregated sexually. Mm, yeah. So they didn't have a physics teacher. So they, our physics teacher was a teacher who normally taught typing in shorthand. And she didn't know any more physics than she could read in the book. Well, we could read the book. <laughs> and we had questions beyond the book. <laughs> and so it was a rather unsatisfactory course. Hard to find too. teachers who would really learn physics, not just some basic science. So did you find yourself leaning towards science, even as a young lady at school? Yes. Oh, definitely. And were there others like you doing, or was it, were you like the only one interested in science? I don't remember any others that were particularly interested in, in school. Actually, I made up my mind in seventh grade that I was going to be an astronomer. I recognized that it would take another 12 years of study, but I decided I was going to try for it. Right. And as far as my interest, I read every astronomy book in the Baltimore Public Library that I could get hold of. Your story is a lot like Jim Gunn because really? you know his father was an oil prospector as well, and oh, really? he read every book in the library, and you know very similar story about astronomy. So, were you a member of an astronomy society or an amateur? No, I wasn't, and I never had a telescope. <laughs> my my excuse is that inexpensive telescopes were not available in my youth. Mm. But other people built them, and I never had the desire to do that. Thinking back, I think it's partly I was more interested in the astronomy than I was at looking at things. So did you get a chance to look through telescopes? Did you go oh, to... Oh, yeah, Col once or twice, not, not often, but occasionally. Yeah, so then you must have been thinking about astronomy at a university... Yes, and I majored in astronomy. So where did you go to? At Swarthmore. And uh, I took more math and more physics than I did astronomy, but hmm. officially astronomy was my major. Do you remember who taught you astronomy? Yes, I do. The primary astronomer at that time was Peter Van de Kamp. And uh, I also took, I guess it was astronomy, from Marriott, but... That was about the department. But there were some prominent women astronomers at that time. I think Swarthmore had... Didn't you have women scientists at that, that stage? Well, um, there was nobody in my year. Well, there was two of mine, and I ignore her name perfectly well. Anyway, she did stay a little while in astronomy after mm. she graduated, but I don't think she ever went on... I don't know whether she made a, got a master's degree or not. She did not get a PhD, I know. Mm. And she just sort of dropped out. Before my time was, of course, Charlotte Siddeley. Mm. And uh, 
after my time, there were several. But uh, while I was there, the only one was Sarah Lippincott. And she had not finished her education at that time. Mm. She was working as, as a sort of a technician. So how did you decide on what kind of astronomy? I mean, how did, you, did you think about getting observations or doing experiments? Because you became a really first-rate builder of things, experimentalist. But oh, I, Definitely I was not theoretical. Unlike my father, I was not a theoretician. <laughs> I was an observer, let's put it that way. I didn't do too much with instrumentation unless I had to, mm. but I definitely was interested in observing and and studying how things behaved. And so where did you go and get your observations? And uh, what was it like, photographic plates, I guess? And oh, yes, all photographic plates. Yeah. I, I have to admit I'm jealous of modern astronomers. <laughs> in one sense, yes, and in one sense, no. Yes, in the sense that the ability to do things that, I, that were completely beyond me. For example, when I was trying to un understand high-velocity stars, I took spectra of low dispersion, MKK-type spectra, of the brightest star giants in globular clusters. And it took me four hours on the best nights to get narrow, half, half the width that I would normally use. Really? A spectra of the brightest globular cluster stars. And so compare that with what you can do today. Amazing. Yeah. Do you remember the big names at the time, the people you remember reading about and being inspired oh, by or talks you'd hear? Well, of course, the faculty at Chicago, for one thing. Yeah. Chandra, yeah. Morgan, Kuiper, Shruva. Did you meet those people at different... Oh, oh yes. Yes, yeah. they were my teachers. Oh, my gosh. How amazing. Were any of them inspiring teachers? I frankly found Chandra the best teacher. And this is interesting because... People tell me that only theorists enjoyed Chandra, but I thought he was a very clear lecturer. Mm. I don't, didn't become a theorist as a result. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I, one time, I, it was a very beautiful day in late spring on a Saturday, and Chandra came by. I was measuring a plate, and he said, would you really rather do that than theory? <laughs> and I had to say yes. <laughs> Although it was not an inspiring job. You had lectures then, and so Chandra was inspiring. What about Kuiper and Struva? I would say they, they were good. I wouldn't say that they were quite on the level of Chandra. Mm. And I don't know why. Uh, they certainly did a good job. Morgan... Uh, I, I shouldn't talk. I have problems with Morgan all the way along. In spite of the fact that he was my thesis advisor. Oh, right. <laughs> but, uh, what sort of a man was he? Because he became famous for classification schemes. And What was that? What kind of a person was he? Strange. <laughs> <laughs> I, think he, I think he really had either mental or emotional problems. Mm. For example, while I was writing my thesis... He went for six months without speaking to me, even when he passed me in the hall. When I'd say hello, he wouldn't respond. Fortunately, Stromgren and Blau were visiting at that time, and they played the role that Morgan should have played. Oh, that's good. 
So I got a good education, but... <laughs> so you did your undergraduate at Swarthmore? Yes. And then you went for your PhD to Chicago? Yes. Oh, right. So you're at Yerkes. I was at Yerkes. I yeah. wasn't on the campus. In fact, I tell people that I think I have a record. I got my PhD from Chicago as a research associate. I was on the faculty for yeah. a year before I saw the campus for the first time. <laughs> I've heard people say that Yerkes was a fairly forbidding place. It didn't have good facilities for living. Is that, no, definitely yeah, didn't. Cold and austere and remote. And, yeah. And what was it like being out there in the winter? I mean, how did you stay warm? Well, just put on warm clothes, and we did have central heating. The only time that that became a real problem was observing on weekends. If it was partly cloudy and you had to be in your office, the office was cold. Oh, I bet. They didn't keep the heat on on the weekend. Was it mostly men that you were doing astronomy with, or were there other women that were able to...? There was always one other woman, but with one exception, it was just a few, just short times. Hmm. Uh, Marjorie Harrison had, and uh, Merle, well, Merle Girl now, yeah. was Merle too, had graduated a while before I came. Ah. But the only one that was with me was Anne Underhill. She and I arrived within a day of each other. Oh, great. And we so we had two years together. Mm. And then she had come with a master's degree, so she left a year earlier than I did. Yeah, I mean, today we're very much more conscious than I guess they were then about the way that women really didn't have the same um, opportunities that men had. I see that all through my family history, let alone in academia, but... Uh, did you feel then that you were not given quite the same resources and well, access? Certainly wasn't, no. Hmm. In fact, uh, I complained about the salary, hmm. which I probably was about 60% of what a man in the same position yeah. would get. And uh, a couple of interesting answers. One from Chandra, who certainly had experienced enough discrimination to know what it was, said, we don't discriminate against women. We can just get them for less. Yeah, isn't that telling? From Chandra, that, that really surprised yeah. me. Yeah. Another time I complained that I was getting less than the high school graduates that were working as what we called computers in those days. Yeah. And the story was, don't look around. And I left academia because I didn't think I had a chance of getting a tenure position in a research institution. Mm. Yeah, I think it'll have to change eventually. Oh, I think it will. All forms of discrimination by religion, skin color, everything will it'll all change. Well, the women's revolution was very clearly dated to 1965, and things for women changed very much for the better after that. Do you remember those times very clearly that things were changing? It was quite a sudden change. And what do you, I mean, give, what, give some examples of the things that stood out for you. Well, one of the things was that in astronomy, for example, women became observatory directors, heads of departments, mm. and, and began to get more senior positions. Mm. Believe it or not, I had a faculty appointment two years before Cecilia Kapashkin got one at Harvard. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's how bad things were. Yeah. 
And uh, I don't think Charlotte Sitterly ever got anything close to mm. an astronomy uh, leadership. And so it goes. This is somewhat changing the subject. But as I said, I left academia because I didn't see a route to tenure. Oh. And uh, Kuiper told me of a job at the Naval Research Laboratory in here in Washington. And uh, I decided to take it. It, I was interested in galactic structure, and it, I thought that the radio astronomy had a lot to offer in the yeah. field. Well, it did, but as usual, I was too early. Oh, of course. <laughs> and uh, I didn't... So that was 1950s, was it? It was 1955. 55. So you and, were a little bit premature there, I guess. Yes. Because 60s was when it took, hit big time. Well, at that time... You were expected to build your own equipment. Yeah. And I didn't really want to start over as an electrical engineer. So I could, you know, I could do little things, but I certainly could not build state-of-the-art receivers. When did you become technically savvy? There was a point in your career where you really got very good at technology. Well, I have a feeling that the NRL experience was probably the, the reason because I was working with engineers strictly. Ah. And, uh, were you actually at the sort of the shop floor level or were you managing engineers? Well, both. I started out at the lower level, then had a small management job, but uh, I don't know that that mattered very much. Anyway, the story I was going to tell is when I got there, I thought they'd had a job for me. They hired me, after all. And uh, I kept trying to find out what they wanted me to do, and I couldn't, couldn't. And so I brought some work with me. And being a new field, I was happy enough to have some time to, to study it. So I just kept myself busy. And I guess and thanks to coffee breaks and things like that, I just sort of worked into the work of the branch. And I think they were pretty unhappy to have me leave when I did. But many years later... One of the men who was there at that time told me what the problem was. Hmm. They'd had another woman, and they thought she was useless. The last thing they wanted was a second woman. Well, it's particularly unfair because I found out later that she had not finished her education. And uh, she was not surprising, was not at the same level. Hmm. But... uh, and she did go on to have a quite a respectable career. Yeah, well, I'm so sorry to hear that, not being given a chance. But uh, as I say, I don't think they would have, if they'd had a man who was unsatisfactory, yeah. I don't think they'd tarred all men. No. So going back for a moment to when you were at Chicago, do you remember the nature of the work that you were doing? I mean, you, you were doing stellar spectroscopy. I was doing primarily stellar spectroscopy. I did get into photoelectric photometry. Did you build your own instrument? No, I didn't. I used a 1P21 with a standard equipment. The closest I came to building an instrument was I went to Kitt Peak one time, and uh, when I tried to work, I found that the photometer, the slide was so wobbly that it was absolutely impossible to use. (laughs) And I 
didn't like the idea of taking apart an instrument that I'd never seen before, but I didn't want to waste a night. <laughs> no. So I, I did fix it. So you were doing photometry and spectroscopy. That yes. was ahead of its time, I suppose, the combination. I don't know about that, yeah. but, but I was doing both, yes. And at what point was it when you began to... I think you, you were one of the first to notice the metallicity of the line, the Yes. That the stellar lines was getting weaker. I didn't for... measure them. It was a matter of just looking at looking them. Looking at them, yeah. Yes, just looking at them in the MKK dispersion and seeing that they were different. Yeah, and then you, but you, I, in one of your papers, I remember reading, you talk about orbit parameters. You were yes. even sort of guessing, given where they are on the sky and their velocity, what their orbits might be like. Yeah. Well, yes. I, what, it was clear that the stars with well, more metals, less hydrogen, were stars that stayed pretty close to the galactic plane, plane yeah. and stayed pretty close to circular orbits. Yeah. The stars with less metals tended to move farther from the galactic plane and to move in orbits with higher eccentricity. Not very high, but high. But it's amazing because today it's formally recognized that you were the first to make those statements clearly. I mean, if you look at literature, people talk about colors and, you know, but there wasn't really spectroscopic knowledge. It was just color. Yeah. And there's all sorts of vague statements. Then along comes your papers in the 50s and you make it really clear. You categorically state metallicity and orbit and that really was the beginning of the galactic archaeology as far as i'm concerned that's the research i'm proudest of yeah and then i, I mentioned to you before i recorded that uh, donald and bell gave you full credit yes. when we presented our work and that's in, nice to hear yeah he said well actually egan linden bell sandwich was not the first egan linden bell and sandwich were very much swayed by your results they thought that more observations would would show that was a generic effect. So they're beginning up sort of to build this picture of the collapsing halo, and um, it's, it was way ahead of its time, actually. You're always yes. ahead of your time. So um, did you think about maybe pursuing that at length, like doing a lot more of those kinds of observations? Or well, what I, my next program was to try to observe stars in high latitudes and low latitudes mm. and try to understand how the differences differ with positions in the sky. And so the, that was my next project. And I, I ended up with the photometry well, partly because I recognized that it was easier to separate the stars photoelectrically than it was spectroscopically. Oh, right. I guess based on color and, and things. Yes, well, the, the stars with more metals had, blue, had, had less had, blue excess. Had less yeah. blue, less yeah. ultraviolet. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing delta U minus B, that parameterization in one of your papers. Um, so when you went to present your results, did you have a chance to present your results on a, on a, on a big stage or was it always at university level? I don't remember that. I republished the results. I don't remember talking about them. So but do you remember anyone coming to you and saying, this is important, this is important? No. The only person who ever did that, as far as I know, was Vera Rubin, in the, uh, mm. who picked one of my papers for the 100th anniversary of the uh, Astrophysical Journal. 
Mm. I suspect she was involved in promoting your work, actually. I wouldn't be at all surprised. She tended to promote women. Yeah, she really did a fantastic job. And she also was very well connected. Yes. Um, I've heard that from Vera and from several people. So, in fact, you just published your results and you weren't aware of the impact. Well, I recognize it as important, definitely. But uh, I guess not too much beyond that. Did you ever know about Egan Linden Belt Sandage connection to your work? Did you? Yes. Oh, well, I didn't know that they paid much attention to my work, but mm. I certainly knew the relation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when Ken and I wrote our review on archaeology and, well, in the 80s, we met at Princeton and were talking about galactic archaeology as a field. And then we wrote up papers in the ni- uh, 1999, 2000, 2002, and various referees kept saying, you know, you need to just really look at the history more carefully. So we oh. spent a lot of time, mm. you know, looking at the the history and, and all the evidence was there about right. the influence of your work. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, I know Sandage has also always remained a fan of mine. Yeah. In fact, I think Alan... And, I, and it's yeah. neutral. Yeah. And Alan, in fact, was one of those that wrote long... <laughs> in handwriting on a paper, he wrote like a 17 page uh, commentary on, a, on one of our papers. Oh, really? Oh, so my. you've got to get your references right, in the right order, and <laughs> he was telling us off. Because, uh, no, we love history. It was, just, we just, it was just a question of how much history do you have to read. And, yes. And starting at Lin- Egg and Linda Bell Sandwich was not the right answer. One has to really look at when. Because they, you know, they, they reference your work anyway. So that work, when you went to Chicago, you carried on working on stellar spectroscopy. Yes, and photometry. And photometry. And then you were you're looking for to get tenure at that stage. That would be the 1950s. Yeah. So it was during the 1950s that you, you moved out of research and then got yes. that job. Well, not out of research. We just moved out of optical research. Optical research, yeah. Because I was doing research at NRL. I did a map of the... Uh, of the sky in at 60, 61 centimeters, uh-huh. and uh, recognized and tried to tried to convince the IAU that the what we then thought was the galactic center was actually a, at least a dual source, which of course it is. Yeah, but I wasn't successful, and I urged I urged the IAU to wait three years because of that, and they could get a better understanding of which one was the center yes. and what it was. But uh, Ort's student had done some work on the position of the center, and Ort stood up for him, and uh, so nobody paid attention to me. So do you remember what year that was? Because those were important years for the it early... It must have been 1955 or six. I think it was 1956. Let me think. No, it had to be 1955. So that, because it was between yeah. Yerkes and, and NRL. That makes you one of the early radio astronomers, one of the first... Yes, in this country. In this country, yeah. Yeah, because the U.S. took quite a while, didn't they, to get into radio astronomy? Yes. It got very big in Europe, in Britain and right. Australia and yeah, Canada. particularly Ort, Ort's group at Leiden. Leiden, yeah. Did you ever visit any of those groups overseas? Yes. Yeah, oh yes. What's your memory of that? You went to the Netherlands? I went to the Netherlands. I w- My first trip to Europe. In those days, people didn't travel across the ocean as easily as they do now. 
and I thought it might be my last trip. So I decided to take advantage of it. I spent a few days in Paris, I think two or three, and then went down to uh, near Marseille. Um, as near Marseille, Aix-en-Provence, um, Grenoble. No. no, oh, um, I did. Go. I went through Aix-en-Provence. No, I'll think of the observatory. It's a major. Oh, oh the observatory. Yes. Oh, and, yes. And I spent several days there, and then I went to Heidelberg. Hmm. I spent a couple of days there. Oh, I had a friend there also. And then uh, I think it was on that trip that I went to Hamburg for a meeting hmm. and then went over to London for a few days and then to, uh, to Ireland. Ireland was where the meeting was, where the IEU met. Oh, was it Trinity College Dublin, somewhere like that? Yes. So that was my introduction to astronomers in other parts of the world. So in the U.S., though, you'd been to, like, American Academy of Science meetings, you'd been to conferences. Well, did you do the conference circuit in the U.S.? Astronomical oh, American Society. Astronomical Society I went to moderately frequently, but that was really the only one hmm. that I went regularly. So it's fascinating that you were one of these early radio astronomers in the U.S. because it was really building in the 50s and 60s yes. outside. Did you become aware of Ewan and Purcell's work? Yes. At uh, Harvard to yes. measure the H1 line. The 21, the 21, 21 centimeter work. Yeah, because you would have been, you would have preceded them, I think. I was, well, I don't know that I preceded him. He, it was the same general same time, period. Yeah. Because I think it was van der Hulst who talked about the transition in the 52, yes. wasn't it? Yes, he, that was during World War II. World War II, yeah. And did you think you might have a go at trying to find that yourself? No, I didn't think about doing that. Mm. Yeah, I take a great interest in Australia because they were one year behind the Americans. Oh, really? The Americans detected it in the galactic plane. They came out to Australia and the Aussies were detecting it from my university, University of Sydney, the following year from the LMC and the SMC. Ah. So that first extragalactic yes. one. So, yeah, and it took a long time for the field to, I guess, interferometry had a big impact, yes. didn't it? To get a resolution. Resolution. Now, were you aware of those developments? Yes. Yeah. So at some point, you, I could see that because you're becoming a radio astronomer, you're becoming much more technically right. savvy and, and getting hands-on. Yes. And where did that take you from there? I don't know that I ever became... Let me put it this way. I don't feel that I became technically savvy in the sense of building things. Mm. I became technically savvy in the sense of understanding how they worked and how you build them. Yeah. If you can understand the difference. I do. And, but a lot of people give you credit, though, for seeing what's possible. Uh, Martin Harwit, for example, said that you backed the idea of cryogenics in space. And I know you said to me that the time had to come eventually, so why not start now? Yeah. But, you know, people give you credit for really well, that's, that's pushing interesting. things. interesting. Yeah. So you clearly knew what was a good thing uh, in terms of technology advancement. Well, yes, and I also was interested in, in trying to utilize the technology that was beginning to come available. So I, I think that was my primary interest, was to try some of these new things and see where they did. So how did, how did you become aware? I mean, how do you be, get, not in those days, there was no internet. 
you know, no Google popped no. up. So how did you actually keep up to date with technological advances? Well, I guess you were in a government lab. Well, I guess partly talking to people, mm-hmm. going to meetings, reading the literature. So thinking back, were there any great revelations for you where you were looking and thinking and thinking, gosh, this is obvious. Well, let's try this or let's try that. Or... No, I don't think so. The only, the only real revelation was the... Uh, Strong and weak like stars. Oh, that was a brilliant revelation. And I compare that to winning the Super Bowl. It's just a feeling when you discover something that you recognize is important. It's a thrill that's very hard to beat. And you knew it long before anybody else. <laughs> so going back to that, those observations, how long did it take you to come to that realization that you were seeing something different? I think as soon as I really convinced myself that it was real. So that's, I mean, the whole program took, took you a year or six months or weeks? Well, the whole program took me a couple of years. So at the end of a couple of years or after, even after one year, did you have this feeling? I don't remember that. Yeah. I, probably not because I, it was only when I put things together at the end that I realized what I was looking at. So you see today what would have happened. They would shove you on CNN News and there would be photographs of you and <laughs> make a massive fuss about you. You know, it's a different world now. Different world altogether. <laughs> I've had more interviews in the last two years than the whole rest of my life. <laughs> I didn't realize that. So who's been interviewing you and what do you think the, the reason is? Oh, I don't know if... Both Swarthmore and Chicago have done long interviews with me. The nearby county, they did an, a television interview of me. When? Recently? Uh, probably about two years ago oh, now. right. And I, their whole group of them, everywhere, everything from a college kid to National Geographic. Yeah. I mean... If you think about why, I, you know, I recently read your Wikipedia page. Oh. It is amazing. I, I haven't mean, read it myself. Oh, I know. Someone's been very kind in updating your Wikipedia page. <laughs> um, it talks about you being the mother of the Hubble yes. and the first woman on the NASA executive and these incredible uh, steps. So somehow you got from NRL as an early radio astronomer to the being elevated to these more senior well, roles. It's a long story, but an interesting story of luck, to be honest. I told you I was trying to study stars in the Milky Way and in high latitudes. And uh, in the process, I observed a star, which according to the catalog, should look like the sun. Hmm. Well, it didn't look at all like the sun. (laughs) Every hydrogen line that could be seen Every neutral or ionized helium line that could be seen were an emission, mm. and there was nothing else. I realized later that there probably was a bit of absorption, but certainly not that you could see easily. Mm. So I took it again the next night and thought maybe I'd gotten the wrong star. No, same way. So I took some more observations, and when I got back, this, I was, this was at McDonald's. Yeah. And when I got back to Yerkes, I wrote a little two-page note about it, went on with the rest of my program without paying much attention. 
Well, after I got to NRL the next year, I was invited to the dedication of an observatory in Armenia. <laughs> I'm assuming it was I'm the new assuming, yeah. yeah, wow. And it turned out, I found out later, that uh, it was because of this paper on the, on the star that didn't look like the sun <laughs> that I was invited. And, uh, but anyway, when I got back, you know, first place, I was an employee of the Navy, I had secret clearance, all that. Gosh. Didn't use that very much. And uh, going to the Soviet Union. And they said I was the first one after the Cold War, but I think the Cold War was still on still pretty on. well. That's incredible. And I only had four weeks to go because Struva had been invited. And he was afraid that if he went, he'd never get out. Hmm. He'd, he'd fought with the, Rush, with the whites. Yeah, white, the white Russians. Right. Gosh. The revolution. So I was invited in his place, which meant that I had only four weeks to get ready. And that meant I had to get paperwork all the way through the system. So I just walked my paper from one, one office to another at NRL. I didn't go over to the Pentagon. So by the time I went, a lot of people knew I was going. <laughs> and when I came back, I was asked to give a talk on my trip, which I did. And then I was asked to give a series of lectures on astronomy. So I gave 10 lectures on astronomy. And these were fun because I was talking to scientists and engineers. Hmm. So I didn't have to do any of the groundwork that you, you have to do with most classes. Well, anyway, so they knew me there. When NASA was formed, uh, the administra Associate Administrator of Science and the Director of Geophysics and Astronomy were both from NRL. And so they knew me. And when they were trying to staff up the office, I went to a talk that Yuri gave at NASA at that time. And uh, while I was there, the, one of them asked me if I knew anybody who'd like to set up a program in space astronomy. Oh. And I assumed that that was a, a asking me if I wanted the job. And I thought about it for about a month because I wasn't at all sure I wanted to leave research and I knew I'd have to if yeah. I took that job. In theory, I would have time, but in fact, I wouldn't. And I knew that. And so I finally decided that the possibility of starting with a completely clean slate and mapping out a program that would influence astronomy for 50 years was just more than I could resist. Oh, fantastic. And it certainly has. And do you remember what year that started? Well, it was 1959, early that I joined NASA. That's the year I was born. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay. So you really did sort of set up the first space astronomy division, in a sense. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't even a division. It was a very small, small. office. But, uh, did you get any staff to help you, or were you on your own? I had a secretary... And I guess there was never more than one assistant. Hmm. But NASA had an interesting arrangement, and may still. They have a parallel course of scientists and engineers that work together as a team. And the scientist obviously worries about the science and the, and the instrumentation, that sort of thing. 
and the engineer worries, worries about program management and costs and that type of thing. Yeah. And, and that's at headquarters. They, I think they have somewhat of a system in the, in the, in the laboratories which do most of the work. The headquarters is just supervision, mm. and planning, that type of thing, budgeting. So you were there 10 whole years before the moon landings. Yes. It's an amazing thought. Yeah. yeah. So you saw all of that, um, right. starting, I guess, with 61, 62, JFK saying, we're going to the moon. But it, you were there post the Russian uh, Sputnik. That was, yes. that was before. Yes, that was while I was still at NRL. So do you remember the impact of Sputnik? And do you remember? Yeah, very much. Oh, yeah. yeah. We went over that night and listened to it. Had dropped the ball. It was just too far behind the Russians. And how did the Russians get ahead of us? That type of thing. And, of course, part of it was that uh, Eisenhower did not want the military to do the human side of space. No. And uh, he did. He wants science done. To explore, yeah. With, in a non-classified field. So did you remember feeling sort of impressed by what the Russians had achieved? Did it strike you as a technological marvel or were you not surprised? It seemed like an amazing achievement, yes. Although I, I don't know to what extent I realized it at the time. I certainly realized since that we were doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your first program at, uh, at NASA when you got there? Did, they, you, did you have to invent something or did someone no, give you something? No, actually there were two things started. Uh, one, the Orbiting Solar Observatory. Oh, yeah. Which John Lindsay, who had come from Colorado University. Oh, let me back up. Rents at the University of Colorado yeah. really started space astronomy in this country. Really? In terms of a rocket program. Yeah. And Lindsay was from that group, had graduated on there. And he had come up with a design for the Orbiting Solar Observatory, which is a very interesting arrangement. If I had had you at my apartment, I could have shown you some I of these know. things, unfortunately. Anyway. I'm sorry about your injury. Anyway, yeah. what it was was a spinning wheel with weight salt so that it acted as a gyroscope. Mm. And the observation, the solar instruments were mounted on the axis, but rotated in the opposite direction, so they stayed on the sun. <laughs> and so it was a very ingenious, very simple in concept, and it worked well. So you joined NASA at a time when there had not been many launches. I mean, oh no, very few, in fact. Very few. And they were essentially military. Yeah. And the, other, the other program that had, and that one, though, the Orbiting Solar Observatory uh, was quite far advanced. It actually flew quite successfully in 1962. Hmm. The other program was the Orbiting Astronomical Observatory, which was to study stars. Uh, yeah. And, of course, they're much harder to study than the sun. They're fainter. They're they t need long exposures. There are a lot of them, so it's easy, hard to find out which one you want, and then you have to stay on it. And uh, there were four or five uh, groups interested in that. 
Smithsonian, Texas. No, that no, it wasn't Texas. Don't think of it. Goldberg at Michigan. Uh, I'm amazed. Code at How Wisconsin. you remember all this is incredible. <laughs> oh, I don't. That's the trouble. Code at Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, someone at God. Uh, I guess it was Kaperian at Goddard. And maybe that's all. And did these feel like small clubs of people launching a satellite, or did it engage a bigger community of Well, it of engaged a lot of people, lot but of there people. were usually a very small group at the top doing yeah. the basic planning, the basic science planning. And they tended to use an aerospace company for the technological planning. Yeah. Well, anyway, the question was, how to put all the wanted to put all these things together in a system that would work for more than one launch, mm. and uh, they finally realized that you could not have the sun and the stars on the same instrument. No. They're just too different. So Goldberg never did get a chance to fly. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that had started. It wasn't very far along, but and it was just beginning to come together. Those were the two first programs. Yeah, so it's extraordinary because you were, again, you've been at the beginning of so many things. Yes. Like, you know, galactic archaeology, radio astronomy, and now space astronomy. So at some point, you must have been worried this is not going to go anywhere. And at some point, you must have thought, this is really going to go somewhere. I guess I thought of space astronomy would be a success. You have to admit the Hubble has gone beyond anything. Unbelievable. I expected. So you get called the mother of the Hubble, yeah. like Lamon Spitzer gets called the father of the right. Hubble. Right. Did you ever talk about the Hubble together? Well, yes, of course. Was, yeah. I talked about a lot with Spitzer. Yeah. But, it's a leading question. Yes. Did he come and visit you? Is that how it started? Yes. And he just came to you and said we should think about a space observatory? Or? No, I don't. I think... He had written a paper in 1947, which was classified, of all things, Gosh. of what you could do with a four-meter telescope in space. And that's why he's called the father of the Hubble. Hmm. And, uh, and he really pushed it for the rest of his life, in one way or another. As far as my being the mother of the Hubble, I, I, there's really, that owes to one man. I hired Ed Weiler, yeah. and he worked for me for about a little over a year before I retired, and he moved up in the organization, and he seemed to have a very favorable opinion of me, because he was the one who called me the mother of the house. Oh, right. He was also responsible for NASA naming a fellowship after me. Yes. And... Uh, That's a very good fellowship series thing, yes, I've seen. And, and he was responsible for get my getting a, an award from women in aerospace. Yeah. He said he tried to get the astronomers to do it, but after 10 years, he gave up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're a boring bunch. Don't, you don't need the right astronomers. Well, they're not interested in government. No, of course not. Vera um, Rubin tells me that one time, she didn't tell me what, that I was, that she nominated me for something. I think it was, I'm sure it's a National Academy, but yeah. I didn't, didn't ask. And she said, their answer was, she's just doing her job. Oh. Of course, they were just doing their jobs, of too. Of course but, they were. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, that's outrageous. I mean, I, that is changing again worldwide. You know, people just forget to recognize the great facilitators, those that really make things happen. Yeah. You know, I guess James Webb Space Telescope, was he an administrator? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But there'll be a Nancy Grace Roman satellite, I guarantee you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a huge optical. It could be radio. It could be, could be anything, really, in your case. So when you and Lyman began talking, you were aware of the because you had secret clearance. I wasn't aware of it until it became public knowledge. Hmm. And so how did that conversation start with, with Lyman about the need for a permanent... Facility. I'm not really sure. It probably goes probably a little bit less direct. The NASA gets advice from the National Academy from time to time in different ways. And they had a summer study in 1962 in which they had panels in different fields. And in the astronomy panel, Aidan Meinl came up with the with the statement that he'd looked at the Saturn booster and decided it could carry a three-meter telescope. Ah. And the panel jumped on that. That was clearly what they wanted. So that was that. Well, I have to admit, I thought it was too early. I knew how much trouble we were having building a satellite that would carry a six-inch telescope. I wasn't about to start on a three-meter, but... um, so I didn't do anything until 65 hmm. when um, they had another summer study and the aerospace companies came in with designs. Well, at that time, the manned program for first NASA was centered at Langley Research Center in Virginia. That probably doesn't matter much. But anyway, their idea was great. Let's have a man telescope. The man can ride along, look <laughs> through it. <laughs> and of course, we hadn't done, hadn't had men looking through a telescope except for double stars <laughs> since the first beginning of the century or earlier. <laughs> and we certainly did not want a man along. We wanted to get rid of the atmosphere, of which, and we didn't want him wiggling. No, of course not. So at that point, I decided that it was still too early, but if. The aerospace companies were going to waste money doing something that's useless. We might as well let them work on something sensible. And so I got into it and started the planning. Gosh, but it became a two-meter at some point. What? It became a two-meter telescope at some point. The Hubble Space Telescope. Became what kind of telescope? A a two-meter, sorry, in diameter. The uh, the mirror size. Well, actually 2.4. 2.4, yes. So it dropped from three meters. It dropped from three meters. A couple of reasons. It it was easier. Hmm. And the second thing that's become obvious now is that the DOD had already been building 2.4 meter telescopes. (laughs) And so the technology exists. You weren't allowed to talk about that. Secret secret stuff. No. In fact, one of the problems is, if you remember the... Hubble didn't work when it properly when it was launched. Yeah. And one of the reasons was that NASA was not allowed to have enough people monitoring it. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, Bob O'Dell, I was on the faculty at Rice. Oh, and yeah. Bob O'Dell was one of my colleagues. I see, then. so he can tell you the story. He, yeah, I remember the day he came into my office and just said that he was so embarrassed in the 90s and said, you won't believe it, the images are aberrated. He said, it's, it was on the floor for seven years. You know, I could have measured that with a ruler. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, but of course, the correcting optics work really well, so... It became a tremendous success. I mean, Hubble is still going. Yeah, oh yes. And you know, and we need optical going decades into the future. So they tell me, the last I heard was that they think it'll last till about 2025. Yeah, I actually heard someone say 2030 last oh, week. Who knows? Who knows? You know, it'll just keep on, you know, keeping but the on. The problem is you can't repair it anymore. No. It kept going this long because you could repair it. I saw a lovely photograph of you um, looking at the James Webb Space. I think John Mather sent that to me. Of you staring at the um, James Webb. Oh, really? Did that blow you away? To I see haven't that? seen it. Oh, there's a photograph of you standing. Maybe they stuck you in front of something. There's hmm. James Webb's in the background, and you're in the foreground. But where did you see it? Uh, it was sent to me. Oh. And maybe maybe it was promotional material. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But I, I must, I'll, I'll find it and uh, email you a copy. Okay. So, I don't um, think I've seen it. Oh, right. I had heard about it the other day, but I... So, um, in the years that you were there for a long, long time, did you always feel that you had tons of money to spend, especially when the lunar landings, or did you feel that money was always tight at NASA? Well, in the Apollo program, during the Apollo years, yeah. money was pretty, fairly liberal. Yeah. Uh, fairly easy to get. Toward the end of the Apollo program, it became tighter. But after that, it almost always was tight. Mm. During the Apollo program, astronomy was so so tiny compared to the cost of Apollo yeah. that we were hardly the comma at the end of the phrase. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing achievement when you think how hard they're finding it now to yes. recreate those lunar, lunar launches, the expense today is huge. So do you remember the time as being very innovative and the kinds of people that were helping with the development of the space program, the Apollo program? I mean, the, the Not really, because most of them, the Apollo program, mostly were engineers. Engineers, yeah. In fact, almost essentially entirely. NASA was an was and still is an engineering organization. It's yes. not a science organization. So the, yes. And uh, which which is fine. It it helps. Scientists need the engineers and engineers know how. In the sense that, at least in my experience, uh, there was a much more interaction between people of different at different levels, and and there was very little feeling that I'm above you or you're above me. Oh, that's good. So it's very egalitarian. Very yeah. egalitarian. Yeah. Yes. So, did it feel small to you then, NASA, or did NASA suddenly get bigger and bigger? Well, oh, NASA got bigger. Yeah. Yes, it was quite. Yes, when I joined, there were about a thousand people. Yeah. So I think it grew to like more than five thousand. Yeah, right. Said. Headquarters. Yeah. Uh, could be. Yeah. Then uh, there was this fellow and uh, Ed Stone. Is that yes. his name? Who did yes. all the Voyager radio astronomy? R right. Because I think he was heavily involved with all the planetary flybys. The Voyager flybys. And, oh, really? Yeah. So you weren't involved with the uh, the planetary probes? No, I wasn't involved. Newell 
who was the, the Associate Administrator for Science, defined astronomy as a study of where you aren't <laughs> to try to keep the planets away from us. But then, interestingly enough, he added geodesy. Hmm. <laughs> And I think we're still on the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the planets were given to other groups like yes. JPL and. Well, no, there. Well, there was obviously a group at headquarters. At headquarters too, of course. Yes. JPL did the planets. Goddard did the stars. Yeah. And the sun. So um, before I came out here, my son was watching this lovely movie called Hidden Figures. Yes. Have you heard about it? Yes. Oh, yes. So, do you remember that culture of, of women being used as computers? Oh, of course. Yeah. And do you remember that? I mean, even when you were there, or was it always like that? Or when did that change? When did they start using real uh, modern electronic? I don't remember. Probably. Hmm. But do you remember calculations? It probably was about 1970. Yeah. But I may be wrong. But do you remember seeing groups of people doing calculations like that? Well, I didn't think it, Donuts didn't associate it particularly with NASA because it was also true at Yerkes and at the major observatories. Of course. In the same way. Yeah. So when you were at Yerkes, you remember seeing that yourself? Oh, yes. Not groups because they weren't that large, but that was what the women did. And how did it work? Did you approach them and say, here's some. Did, Staff say here are calculations that need. They doing usually work for an individual professor. Right. Yeah, it's an amazing concept, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and do you remember when computers, electronic computers, became important? When people became be important, I don't know. I told you I had a habit of being early, <laughs> and, and that's another situation. I talked to Chandra Sekar about using a computer to reduce photoelectric photometry. He said, that's not what computers are for. Really? And I could give similar, well, I have a lot of situations in which I was early. But anyway, when I went to NRL, they had a computer, and I programmed that to do photoelectric photometry in about 1956. Incredible, because today all these satellites do just that. Like yes, Hubble of course. And uh, Kepler and you know, these amazing missions like Gaia does its photometry like that and the Sloan Survey, you know, and it's, it's You wouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't do them without computers. Not at all. In fact, it's big business now. Oh, you know, yes. You know. So um, I'm really impressed by the technology we have today, but I don't think people really understand where it's come from, you know, what we've gone through to get there. Well, my first introduction to computers was at an, a, an astronomical society meeting in New York when Eckerd showed the first IBM computer. Huh. What year was that, do you say? Roughly about 1970-ish? No, it was, I before, think before. it was probably 1945. Oh. oh, you mean one of the really early yes. uh, models? And then he, he then worked with the Naval Research Laboratory, Naval Observatory, with developing computers for astronomy. Ah, right. Yeah, I, that's not history I've never heard much about, really. Well, I mentioned that I was early. I, I was obviously early as a woman in, in the university, and I told you about the computers. Another one, I, 
I don't know how I heard about it, but Argonne Laboratory had a measuring machine for measuring plates, of course, yes. in which you scanned the image this way and this way and matched them. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how, how it happened, but anyway, it seemed like it might be a useful thing for astronomy. Yeah. And so I went down to Oregon for four for visits with different types of plates, and spectra, direct photography, high dispersion spectra, low dispersion, etc. And did a thorough investigation and came to the conclusion that that was the way to go. You mean scanning plates, scanning photographic yes, plates? Yes, right. Like microdensitometry or... So I tried to get Yerkes uh, to build one. Hmm. Couldn't. Two years later, every observatory in the country was using them. Your career then at NASA, did you basically, it sort of was always like doing one big project after another, this sort of constant delivering on these big projects. Is, is that how it works? They weren't all big, but yes. When did they decide on doing sort of smaller missions, or were the smaller missions always there? The smaller missions were always there. He had three small astronomy satellites, one for cosmic rays, one for gamma rays, and one for UV and optical. Hmm. And uh, I don't remember how large they were, but they were called small astronomical satellites. The International Ultraviolet Explorer was fairly small and was, to my mind, a very successful one. In fact, that's the one that I feel proudest of. Hubble would have come along without me, I think. I'm convinced. Uh, I know other people who are not, but that's another matter. But IUE would not have. Yes. In the first place, the X-ray astronomers were much more politically savvy than the optical astronomers yeah. at that time. And they were afraid that if we, they built an astronomical, an optical one, that it would take money away from them. And the second thing, it had two strikes against it. The two co-investigators were a Brit and one from Goddard. Yes. And the, the academic community was very opposed to Goddard at that time, and they didn't like the idea of a Brit. Of a foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> being, being equal. Yeah. And then, of course, the European uh, space, space agency, agency yeah. yes, uh, joined in. So it was a triple. Why was the community pitched against NASA Goddard? What was the problem with Goddard? I think competition. All oh, right. And I have to admit, NASA Goddard was not great in the early days. Hmm. But that mission was. You must have been very proud. IU is awesome. I, I went there as a student. I was a summer student. I became my PhD, and I went to Madrid to use IUE at Vilspa. Oh, really? That's where the, the um, communication, the CAPCOM. The well, I have been told that half the astronomers in the world use the IUE. Mm. Now, even if it's only half the observational astronomers, which it probably was, that's an awfully large percentage. I remember being on papers about AGN, UV observations of SAFERTS. Yes. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. I've forgotten which mission I was going to mention to you like that. Um, oh, COBE. Do you, do you remember? That's a long journey, wasn't it? The COBE satellite, microwave background. John Mather... George Smoot. I don't remember that it was unusually long. 
Oh, I thought someone said they, they began thinking about it in the 60s. It could very well be. Because yeah. that was a tremendously successful Yes, project. it certainly was. So I said before that Martin Harwood gives you full credit for cryo in space. He says that, you know, you discussed it with him, he put in a grant and you agreed. So you must have thought that space opened up a lot of opportunities that hadn't been explored so far. There were lots and of And I was interested in trying to pursue them. Yeah. So do you remember some of those sorts of missions that needed cryo technology? Well, one that wasn't terribly successful was the radio astronomy satellites. There oh. were two of them. Oh, what were they? I, I, I don't know. Well, they, well, they were just what it sounds like. They were long wave, long wave. so yeah. they didn't go through the atmosphere. And the idea was to try to find uh, what space was like in yeah. a long wave. The reason they weren't terribly successful, it was twofold, well, threefold. One, because they were long wave, they had very little spatial resolution. Mm. They had very long rabbit ears. Yes. Like 250 feet. Seriously? <laughs> it sort of sprung out. When yeah. it was, ah, right. But even with that, they had very poor resolution. But even more important, the first one was completely swamped by television. Yes. Radio course. and television. Yeah. So the second one was put in orbit around the moon with the idea that you could get observations of space when you From were the on the far side. Yeah. And, and that worked. But the problem was that they're just the sensitivity and the resolution were just too low. And you could see the sun, of course. You could see Jupiter. I think you could see Saturn, but you couldn't see much else. So when, it, when the little satellite was on the far side of the moon, you must have been storing... Stored the data until you got to... Yeah. Could, you could transmit it. Transmit it back, yeah, on the other side. That's neat, isn't it? Yeah. So what year was that? Would that be early 60s or...? I think so. I don't really remember yeah. the year. You don't hear much about radio astronomy in space anymore. No. You can do so much. Well, the first place, it's still not a trivial thing to do in space. No. You can't do it unless you, unless you have an interferometer. There's, yeah. there's no sense in doing anything at long wave. The Japanese tried VLBI. Yes. By sort of trying to sync with stuff on the ground. Yes. And that wasn't easy either. I don't think much came from that. So, and, of course, the, you can get down into the submillimeter region from the ground, so you don't really need the space. Did you ever deal with Giacconi, Riccardo Giacconi? Giacconi, yes, I knew, did deal with him. Yeah, because yeah, dealing with him is the right description. He was pushing uh, X-ray. Well, that's where he started. Yeah. Um, then he ended up as the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute. Yeah. So when you think back over those years, there must be so many personalities and characters that you had to deal with. And you somehow navigated your way through all these research groups and egos and... I don't know. I just, just did. Yeah. So did you stay in that role on the NASA executive or did you sort of go into other things? Did you literally, re you retained until retirement your role on the NASA executive? No, once I retired, I stayed away from headquarters hmm. and I stayed away from any sort of management role. Hmm. I didn't think it was fair to Ed or any of the others for me to keep my head in, 
and to linger on. <laughs> yeah. But, what did you do then when you left NASA? Well, I started, I took about three months to get rested. And what year was that? That was uh, late 79. And uh, then after Christmas, I decided if I was going to get back into research, there were two things I needed to do. I needed to get knowledgeable about modern computers, and I needed to get knowledgeable about digital observations. Yes. And so I went to Montgomery College and took an audited course in Fortran. Did you really? Yes. Gosh. And then I decided after 20 years in management, I wasn't going to get back into forefront research, so I just dropped the idea. So then I looked around for another job, and I only wanted to work half-time. My mother was with me, yeah. and she was needing more and more time yeah. and attention, and I, so I couldn't handle a major job. Tried to get half-time work, and I ended up as a consultant for a company called ORI, which primarily was supporting the, well, the space telescope, the, what became the Hubble. And so I, I did a number of things for them, including I had a group together to, to study the amount of money that the observers would need yeah. and uh, things of that sort. I wrote brochures for them. Gosh. I uh, had did two studies that had nothing to do with with uh, the Hubble and on geodesy. JPL had wanted to use long baseline interferometry to measure earthquake motion, yeah. measure motion. And uh, NASA headquarters wanted to know whether this made sense. And uh, so, I, I, as I say, I did two studies she meant learning something more about geology, which was fun. Your father would have appreciated that, right, the right. irony of you going back to geology. Yeah, he was dead by that time. Of course. And uh, I ended up, I knew the GPS was coming along, hmm. and I ended up saying that I thought the GPS was the way to go, and uh, it clearly has been. Absolutely. So that does, I wonder who made that decision, how GPS happened. Well, GPS was a military. Oh, it was. It was a military, wasn't it? It was a military yeah. program. U.S. military program? Yes. Yeah. It's it, it, become a standard now. Oh, yes. I don't, I've never understood, and I don't know, let's put it this way. It had two levels of, of accuracy. Yeah. Originally. The one accuracy was general public. The higher accuracy was strictly military. Yes. And I don't know if that's still true or not. Then ORI lost that contract, and it went to McDonnell Douglas. So I moved over to McDonnell Douglas and worked for them for a while. But I ended up not supporting the Hubble, but supporting the Earth Observation Program. Oh, right. And it turned out that uh, looking down and looking up isn't all that different. The instrumentation is pretty similar. Yeah. So I worked in that for several years. And uh, then that work petered out. And I just gave up working for money and started doing volunteer work. And the uh, first thing I got into was a program of supporting fifth grades. 
doing programs was fifth grade. The idea was that you had six one-hour periods, six weeks with one-hour period each week, and then you took them to on a field trip to mm. some sort. So I did that for several years. And then uh, I don't remember how it happened. Then I got involved with a program which I really enjoyed and I think was quite useful. Sent scientists and engineers to underserved regions of the country mm. to talk to school children. Gosh. Anywhere, theoretically, from K to 12, but actually from about 2 to 13. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we spent an hour in each class and did probably four a day on the average for a week and uh, then went somewhere else. And then I just thoroughly enjoyed. Don't you marvel at the fact that you've gone your whole life being academic and driven and doing these really interesting projects? Don't you marvel at that? You know, you're 93 years old and you're still going strong with all these these sorts of this technical thinking. And yeah, well, I still give lectures. You do? Oh, yes. Well, I haven't given any this year because I haven't been well, but uh, I have been giving a dozen a year. Gosh, because we all dream of being mentally alert and academic, you know, be able to pursue academic way of thinking until we're in our 90s, and you've actually achieved that. Well, I certainly am, am not, uh, let me put it this way, I'm no longer capable of really understanding detailed research papers. Mm. Yeah. When you look back over your career, your whole life, are there times that you would like to go back to? Are there sort of t- moments in that you probably, or do you not look back? I'm a bit of a nostalgic person, but if you were to look back over your life, were there particular times that you really enjoyed, your favorite times? And thought about that. I think my years at Yerkes after my degree was a great time. Hmm. I think the my early years at NASA were, were a great time. Although I have to admit, academic teaching do not prepare you for management. And so getting into management was pretty much like learning to swim by going into deep water. <laughs> and I floundered them in the bit. But But, you survived in management for years. Yes, I survived. And was it dealing with personalities or just dealing with process? I think it was just dealing with programmatics, how to get things working smoothly. But didn't you have to invent that? A lot of this stuff you must have invented for yourself, like how do we get an astronomy satellite up and running? How do we get the community to agree? As far as the satellite itself, I did not really... Oh, gosh. I won't keep you much longer. This must, this must be a very long interview for you. That's all right. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I always like talking about myself. <laughs> well, you're actually, you're, you know, Donald Trump likes talking about himself, but he's not interesting. I mean, you're interesting. <laughs> <laughs> to you, at least. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so how did you cope with the management structure? Did you have to invent it partially, or, or was there somebody who could advise you? Was there anybody good at managing at NASA before you got there? Yes, I think maybe some people were. The senior people from the old NACA had quite a bit of management experience and were pretty good at it. Yeah, I mean, at some point, 
the international community got involved, like, and, and other countries began copying the successful American formula. Oh, really? I think a lot of the European ESA was very much impressed by NASA's success with space, space missions, early on at least. I mean, at some point, you must have looked around you and realized it was really working. You know, there was yes. a very successful program. Were you ever aware of tension with ground-based astronomy? Yes, definitely. The early days, clearly, there was a, I'll call it an East Coast, West Coast divide. The East Coast, which had poor weather and wanted to do something about it, versus the West Coast, which had good weather, large instruments, mm. and didn't want to bother siphoning off money to space. Mm. And there was quite a, I won't call it a fight, because it wasn't that intense, but there was definitely a, a real competition between them. Do you remember who the players, the factions were? Some of them. The uh, East Coast was Spitzer, mm. uh, Swartschild, Code, mm. Menzel, Whipple more than Menzel. The West Coast was largely uh, Greenstein, who, who later changed sides completely. And oh, because he got into the ultraviolet, didn't he? He liked yes. the ultraviolet. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, let's see, head of Lick. My memory is not no, that it's, great. It's pretty fantastic, actually. <laughs> anyway, the head of Lick and uh, Santa Barbara. Yeah, of course. Hawaii wasn't much of a role at that time. but So going back to Schwarzschild, he launched, um, was involved in the launch of a sounding rocket that yeah. did imaging of the center of M31. Yes. Do you ever remember anything about that? Because he saw that the nucleus of M31 was very bright and very concentrated in optical light. No, I don't And it was all done with a sounding rocket. I was always impressed that a university could put together uh, their own space experiment. Well, the rockets weren't all that complicated. I guess one of the reasons that Greenstein was an opponent is that he, early in, the U.S. had some V-2s that they'd gotten from Germany. Yeah. And they wanted to try to test them, and they wanted to carry payloads on them. And Greenstein built an instrument, a spectrograph, uh, for one of them, and it failed. And he lost his instrument and didn't get any data. Uh -huh. And that, that pretty well turned him against space. <laughs> that was early, and the V2s did have problems. Yeah. How many V2s did you have to play with? I don't remember, but probably a couple dozen. Yeah. Did you meet any of the, the Germans that came over to help with the NASA space program? Not at that time. I met them later when, and <laughs> when they were at Huntsville. And what did you make of them? Did you find them fascinating? I, I found, found them quite different. I, I never really became enamored of von Braun. I always felt that he had too much of, a, of the hair professor. Really? And military attitude. I, he was very nice to me. I don't have any, don't have any personal complaints. I just had that feeling. On the other hand... I really liked Stuhlinger. Oh, right. Who was a, well, first place he was, was a scientist. Mm. And I also found out that although he'd been at Pinamunda, he was not there by choice. No. And that may have made a difference. I, I think so. 
When you met Von Braun, was he always just formal with you or? No, I think I could engage him in conversation. Yeah, because history has not been kind to him. The Americans often say, we got the best Germans, the Russians got the second-rate Germans. That's why our space program ended up being... Oh. That's the comment I, I read in <laughs> I a, heard a that. biography of Von Braun. So, because he was, of course, heavily involved in trying to get the nose cone registered, wasn't it, with gyroscopes. Yeah. So keeping the early rockets kept veering off track. Yes. And so they put this... Um, gyro in the nose cone to keep it keep it upright keep it upright did you ever arrange for sounding rocket technology to launch did you ever launch any rockets yourself like no those, no 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 because they, astronomers did use them i think with, they used them but yeah. they didn't launch them i think some early x-ray demonstrators were also on sounding rockets i think i don't think so oh, they were on oh, sounding maybe. rockets yeah. but they were military rockets oh i see yeah it was a fascinating time actually yeah oh, it know. was the first couple of years at NASA were fantastic. It must have felt, excuse the pun, the sky's the limit, like anything could happen. Yes, but the main thing was that the staff was largely selected from the, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Right. And it was the senior group of them that came to form the nucleus of NASA. Hmm. And... Everybody was competent. It was a new field. Everybody was gung-ho and getting things off to a good start. There was no obvious friction among groups. Right. It just was a wonderful place to work. And did you have a sense that even then that NASA could grow or funding was being made available and you know you could have anybody you wanted, hire people? Was there that culture or I think that was true, yeah. I don't know, don't remember that that particular aspect of it. Certainly, there was money to do the projects. I think NASA's prestige, kudos, came from the lunar landings in some ways, didn't it? Like Came from what? The lunar la- the yes. men walking on the, the moon. Yeah. Oh, yes. Then the world was going, what an awesome American technology demonstrator to have humans walking. Yes. I was nine years old watching that on a black oh, and white really? TV. Just, I mean, you must have been astonished, really. Yes. Did you ever get to meet any of those astronauts? I, I briefed the Mercury 7. Oh, you did? And I met some of them later, but from different ways. Hmm. Not very detailed, and only a few. Well, there were two that were astronomers, and one of whom I had known before he joined NASA. What do you make of the space station? Is that a giant white elephant, or is that the stepping stone for the human race to go off into... I guess maybe something in between. (laughs) I have to admit I've never been an enthusiast of the space station. It looks to me like an overgrown tinker toy. (laughs) But uh, be that as it may, I gather, and I don't think it's particularly useful for astronomy or even physical sciences generally, but apparently they are getting good medical information. Yeah, and biological to some extent. So I'm not completely against it. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it's worth the money, but there may be no other way to do it. I would say that still scientists are not particularly good. You do need a project manager. Well, the trouble we had with the Hubble and the James Webb both indicate why a good project manager is desirable, but not necessarily available. 
Did Hubble have good project managers? Did, I don't yeah. know much about the history of Hubble. Yes, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. They were supposed to be good, and they were picked to be good, but some of them didn't work out too well. Do any of the projects ever allow astronomers to get involved? Not in terms of building the hardware, but in terms of discussing the hardware yeah. and what it should do and how. So well, I'm worried about the James Webb because it can't be fixed. In, in what respect? You can't reach it. Oh, you mean once it's launched to the L2? I know. Really risky. I, mean, I hope I'm wrong. But maybe somebody will invent a way that humans can get to Well, it doesn't mean an invention. No. The question is, what do you want to do? They That's want right. to go to Mars, or they want to go to an asteroid, or they want right. to go to the moon. Yeah. They don't want to go to L2. To fix a James Webb, I know. There's nothing there. Well, it's not just James Webb, actually. There are other satellites that are going to L2. Or in case of the sun, L1. L1, yeah, of course. Which is a comparable feed, I believe. Was there any satellite you ever wanted to build that never got built? I don't think of any, no. Hmm. Well, you pretty much covered all the wave bands. Yes. You, did you really believe in X-rays and gamma rays and all these things? Yes, I think I did. Yeah. I was a little surprised about the gamma ray. I was interested in trying to exploit all the possibilities and seeing what was there. And if nothing, as a radio, well, we dropped it after a while. So anyway, I'm going to leave you alone. I've been with you for well over two hours, and I've really, I'm so grateful to you. I've always wanted to meet you. Uh, it's a real honor. Well, it's been very nice meeting you. Thank you so much. I'm sorry about your leg. You're falling over. Well, I don't know what happened. I, don't, I did fall, but as far as I can tell, I didn't hurt myself. I went straight through your neighborhood, Chevy Chase. Nice neighborhood, but you yes. live. Lovely. You must be looking forward to getting back to your apartment. Oh, yes, I am. I'm looking forward to being able to walk. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, how, I mean, how much longer will they keep you here? I don't know. Probably until I can walk. Next time I visit you, I want to see your apartment with all these things we talked about, these replicas and photographs and... And I'm also very happy to help with your integration of your well, I may take you up on that. Please do. And I'll I'll see whether I can get things organized enough to make it worth it. Yeah, because we'd love that article from you for the annual reviews. I did send some of the things to the American Institute of Physics. Oh, you did? Well, I'm, as I say, I may take you up on it. Well, you're very, very welcome to just no, ask. thank me. you. <laughs> All right, I'll leave you. I'm, I'm so grateful to you. I'm going to just turn this off now if I can remember how.